Hello, and welcome to Church in Maine, the podcast at the intersection of faith and modern life. I am Dennis Sanders, your host. Church in Maine is a podcast that looks for God in the midst of the issues that are affecting the church and the larger society. Now, you can learn more about the podcast, listen to past episodes, and donate by checking us out at churchinmaine.org or churchinmaine.substack.com. Consider subscribing to the podcast. You can do that at either website or on your favorite podcast app. And leave a review. That does help others find this podcast. So I have another uh, best of episode, uh, which is quite common this time of year um, when uh, people are scarce for interviews. And um, this one feels somewhat timely again. Um, this is an interview I did in December 2021 with uh, Drew McIntyre, um, who is a uh, Methodist elder, Methodist pastor um, at a church in Greensboro, North Carolina. And he wrote an article for Firebrand Magazine um, on uh, Black Lives Matter. And that has always been, unfortunately, a very controversial topic. Um, for some people, it is um, kind of the, the, the kind of vanguard of a movement. For others, it just seems like what would be considered uh, reverse racism. Um, but Drew is looking at this from a theological standpoint. And um, the article that he wrote, which is The Scandal of Particularity, Black Lives and Jesus in 2021, uh, was a thought-provoking article. I thought that I would um, share it again. And, you know, the whole movement of Black Lives Matter sometimes can be how it has gone down. Um, sometimes it's not been very helpful. Um, I think, to racial reconciliation, racial justice. But that doesn't mean that the phrase doesn't have some theological significance. I think sometimes some important theological significance. And so um, I wanted to share this article again um, and also this interview I had with uh, Drew again. And so I hope that you will listen. And um, as he says towards the end of the interview, uh, let him, let him know what you think. Um, you can find out, uh, he'd like to know, he'd like to learn from others and hear from others. And I will put, um, inf contact information, um, especially to his website, um, on, uh, the show notes. Uh, one note again, you will hear the word the, the podcast being referred to as en route. Um, en route, of course, it was the prior name for the podcast before it became church in Maine. Um, so just so that you know that that's when you hear that and you're wondering where in the world, it, what, what in the world is this whole en route all about? That's what it's all about. Um, we will have another special episode, um, coming up. It won't be an interview episode, but, uh, just before Christmas, um, and I'm still kind of working out some things for a recap episode episode for, uh, some of the uh, noteworthy interviews I had in 2023 when I'm looking at coming forward in 2024. And, um, and so I'll talk about the year in the past. It's been kind of a big year um, in my life personally. Um, there've also been some really good interviews. So um, stay tuned for that episode, which um, hopefully will come next week. But for now, let's listen to this 2021 interview I had uh, with uh, Drew McIntyre. Sanders, your host, welcome. This is the podcast where we explore the who, where, what, why, and how of religion and the intersections with other aspects of life. Black Lives Matter. 
Those three words have launched a million arguments over the last eight years or so. What began as a hashtag in the wake of the acquittal of George Zimmerman uh, concerning the death of Trayvon Martin has become a phrase that has gone global. And all the while, it has become controversial. Some think that it's an exclusive term, maybe even racist, because they think that it only focuses on black people. Others are suspicious because of the organization that also bears that name, that takes incredibly far-left positions on various issues. But there are others that like the phrase, but they seem to take it on without really asking any questions. Methodist pastor Drew McIntyre wanted to look at Black Lives Matter from a theological standpoint. What does it mean for followers of Jesus to say this phrase? Can followers of Jesus say this phrase? The answer is an emphatic yes. And in this episode, we will talk about what Black Lives Matter means from a theological viewpoint and what it means for African Americans to hear the church say Black Lives Matter. Join us for the journey this week. Drew is a pastor of Grace United Methodist Church in Greensboro, North Carolina. I have known him for several years, and I always appreciate what he has to say because he moves from the surface level to really dig deep into theological issues that far too many of us really don't want to deal with. So I hope that you will enjoy this conversation. With that, let's listen to Drew. talk to you. You too, Dennis. Thank you for having me. Well, for those people who are definitely kind of in the uh, TLDR camp, um, would you be able to kind of give a summary of the of the article and kind of go from there? Sure, sure. Um, you know, as a preacher, I'm used to people telling me I ran too long. So, uh, so I'm used to that. Um, I guess if I start by saying sort of what I wanted to do with this piece and what I wanted to do with this piece really was just bring some theology to the conversation around Black Lives Matter. Um, And not Black Lives Matter, sort of the the social movement or the hashtag or the organization, um, but really just the, the concept, the concept of Black Lives Matter. What does it mean to bring some kind of Christian theology to that? Um, because I don't know what your experience has been, but what I've observed the last, since it's been around, is sort of, we have some folks that sort of immediately appropriate that language, um, sort of uncritically in my view, mm-hmm. and, and and talking about the church primarily, and others who um, dismiss it, I think, equally uncritically, just sort of react. And so I really wanted to ask in, the, in this piece, sort of, what does it mean to examine this theologically? And how I got to that was, was it just sort of hit me one day that the the, the the way people were reacting to Black Lives Matter was very much like what Newbegin wrote about when he described the scandal of particularity. Mm-hmm. Newbegin, are you a Newbegin fan? Have you read any of the Newbegin stuff? I have read some of Newbegin stuff. Yeah, I'm, I'm a big Newbegin fan. I encountered him in, in seminary. Uh, one of my professors, Jeffrey Wainwright, uh, was close to Newbegin. Uh, Newbegin was a missiologist and an ecumenist. Um, wrote some really amazing books. Um, was later a bishop. Uh, I think in the Unified Church of, of India. Um, but he had this concept of, called a scandal of particularity, um, that it's a scandal to the modern mind that, that, that God works through particulars, through particular through particularity of, of Israel as a people, not as a nation state. You want to bracket, you know, again, bracket that from the conversation, but the biblical people of God. And also that God works particularly in and through Jesus as the, you know, as the word made flesh, as the incarnate Savior. Um that there's something that that grates in the modern mind that kind of grates against that. And in a similar way, there's something, I think, at least in American culture, that grates against this notion that 
um, that there there should be or, or would be an emphasis on um, the importance of, of black lives in the midst of um, you know uh, too many um, unnecessary deaths or killings and, and of course all the other things we've, we've seen in the last decade or so. And so it was making the connection and new beginning is kind of how I started. And then I sort of built onto that um, some insights from the new perspective on Paul, um, which has really um, done important work, especially following E.P. Sanders um, and biblical studies of reassessing the connections between Judaism and the New Testament um, and sort of getting away from some of the um, overly medieval kind of anti-Catholic stuff that led to some really harsh readings of, um, of Judaism and the New Testament. A lot of that came from one of my professors in seminary, Douglas Campbell, um, was a big influence on me. And then also I looked at John Wesley. I'm a, I'm a United Methodist pastor. And of course, I've, I've got to go to John Wesley. Um, but, you know, one, the, the last letter we have from John Wesley um, was a letter to William Wilberforce, who, of course, was an evangelical Christian that was fighting against slavery in Britain. And in his letter, Wesley describes American slavery as the most vile form that the earth had ever seen, you know, that the world had ever known. And, um, um, and so I kind of put all that together along with some personal kind of anecdotes, just as a, as a way of saying, you know, in the, in the biblical narrative, the biblical drama, God works oftentimes from the particular to the whole. We like to work from the whole to the particular, but God works from the particular to the whole. And that, that might give us some, I think, some scriptural warrants for the church right now to say, um, you know, it's and a lot of this we've seen in sort of memes and social media posts, but just this idea that like, you know, if I'm the fire department and there's a house on fire, what's important in that moment is not that every house matters. What's important in that moment is that there's a house on fire. And I think this is a way of theologically of saying, you know, this is these are the people that are that are feeling devalued right now, whose whose lives are endangered, whose who 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 feel devalued by the, the culture writ large. And the church should be able to say, I close by saying, we shouldn't be surprised that, that people cannot hear us saying um, all people matter to Jesus unless we first say black lives matter to Jesus. Uh, so I hope that's a helpful summary. I'm curious if you think that's what you read in the piece, but yeah, that is exactly what I read. And I think it is, um, there's a lot of truth in the, in the, in that I think our modern way of looking at things is from a very universal standpoint. Um, and I think that there are lots of, of things, especially in our, our particular faith, um, that because it's runs the other way. And mm-hmm. I think we have a hard time dealing with things that aren't, um, universal because we think, I tend to think that we have a bias against the particular, that the particular we somehow meet, think it means exclusive. Right. Or, um, so there is that kind of, of, of tension so that it seems like that's part of the reason, at least from my um, standpoint, where um, Black Lives Matter can be grating because it makes it sound like that's the only person, only group that matters. Um, anyone that knows any, I, I guess I would think that people who are, are at least aware know that this is not some type of black separatism. Um, this is, this is something really about looking at a, a particular part of humanity, but it, it's not excluding. Um, it, it's kind of like the whole thing of Jesus or the, the, the um, parable of, uh, going after the one sheep and leaving the 99 behind. Does that mean that the, the shepherd doesn't care about the, the 99? No, he does. But there is this one sheep that's out there that needs help. And I would think that that's kind of how you would be, would at least look at Black Lives Matter, especially from a Christian standpoint. Yeah. And, and you know, um, again, I say I think I say this in the piece. Um, I'm a United Methodist pastor. That doesn't mean I can endorse everything that's got a UMC stamp on it. And in the same way, I think Christians should, should be able to say, at least understand um, why we need to say Black Lives Matter without having to defend everything that's had Black Lives Matter on it. 
mm-hmm. right? We should be able to kind of be mature enough to kind of bracket um, those those things. Um, it's also I, I one of the an important part of my piece is um, the work of Willie James Jennings. Um, Dr. Jennings used to be at Duke. He's at, at Yale now, but I think a really important thinker um, right now uh, for the church. He had a really great interview that was in Christianity Today that I, I drew on for for this piece. Um, uh, where, where he talks, he, he really makes those connections about you know, the origins of racism being in sort of the de-Judaizing of Christianity. Uh, mm-hmm. And I drew on that pretty heavily. He also talks in, the, in there about sort of Christians, um, Christian anxiety about not being the center of the story, right? That we, we de-Judaize uh, Christianity because we want to be the center of the story. And so it's also worth naming, as I say in the piece, that I have a degree of awkwardness um, about this piece and about talking about it because I recognize I'm in danger of centering myself in a conversation that's, that's not about, it's not about me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and in danger of putting, you know, I don't know, my voice in the middle of a conversation where other voices frankly are more valuable than mine. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I first drafted this piece about six months ago and um, kind of sat on it for a long time, had friends look at it, you know, left it alone for a while, went back to it. I was, very hesitant about putting this out there just because um, I wanted it to be as good as it could be. But also I just, I don't know, we're, we're both mainline pastors. I won't speak for you, but I feel like I know a lot of progressive young clergy that, that wants to sort of wear the mantle of fighting racism and make that a big part of their identity. And um, to me, in some ways, that's often kind of an obvious, um, I don't know, attempt at platforming themselves. And I, I really don't want to be that. And so I was hesitant in some ways about this piece. Um, it's not kind of race, racism, race matters is not something I've often written about. Not because I'm not interested. I, I try to read very widely and pay attention. But again, just because I feel kind of inadequate mm-hmm. talking about it and, you know, having an opinion about it, frankly, in some ways. So I'm grateful for the chance to talk to you about it and just kind of get your thoughts. Um, uh, because again, I, I, I feel like I have something to say, but also I feel like I'm just another white guy saying too much in some ways. <laughs> but, you know, I think that part of it is important. Um, and I, I can understand the, the the concern about ending up centering yourself in that I don't think that's what's happening here. I think it's actually, in some ways, and I know this word, this word gets used way too much and usually doesn't mean what they people think it means but i do think that this was in some ways prophetic in that it's trying to to speak maybe a difficult word that to help people understand what is the importance of this phrase Mm -hmm. theologically and that can be i think disconcerting to a lot of people for a lot of reasons. Um, if there are people who've, I think, immediately appropriated the word and just kind of go from there, there's probably a sense that, you know, as I think you wrote, that you're not going far enough. Um, and then there are those that, hearing the phrase, just kind of raises hackles <laughs> and they just get freaked out. And they need to hear this because even if they don't necessarily want to hear it or maybe try not to hear it, but there is an importance of what does this mean? And um, especially about who is the, is, is the gospel for, Um, and, and ultimately the gospel is for, for everyone. But I also think that there's a part of it, um, and I think you use this in the article to borrow kind of from our Catholic sisters and brothers that there is this whole preferential op- option for the poor, of this sense that the marginalized are kind of important in God's eyes. Um, again, not saying that no one else is, but that these people hold some special value. And, you know, I think that that's, that matters. And I think the whole point of, I guess, again, putting Jews in the center of that story of salvation 
also matters. Um, Because kind of the whole religion kind of doesn't work if you don't have the Jews in there somewhere. Yeah. I'm just saying. (laughs) It just doesn't really work that well without them. So. Yeah, well, and, and I mean, Paul's, um, you know, people beat up on Paul, that's a separate podcast, but um, Paul's very, you know, very clear about this, that, um, you know, and this is in the piece, that we are a, a wild Gentiles or a wild olive branch, right? We have been graciously included in a story that was not ours, right? Th- through the work of Christ, the the, the, the blessings and covenant of Israel are, are opened up to us. And when we forget that, it gets very ugly, Um and you know, at the um, uh, at the at the risk of you know every internet conversation devolving into talking about Nazis, there is historically a connection to Christians forgetting about the Jewishness of Jesus and the Jewishness of Christianity, mm-hmm. um, making possible uh, you know the final solution. That's a real historical thing. That's not just hyperbole. That's not rhetoric. That's that's real history. Pretty much all you have to do is read the Barman Declaration, and that, yeah, that will tell you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so bad stuff happens when um, many bad things happen when Gentiles, uh, Christians, forget that the story does not center on us. Um, that we have been invited to a table that you know was not ours originally, um, which is a scandal, but it's also true. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think. One of the things I remember in my uh, first year in seminary, we um, we had a, a spent basically a Saturday at um, a local um, synagogue mm. and um, met with the rabbi of, of that congregation. And there's something I remember him talking about in um, referencing Isaiah and kind of referencing what a certain passage, how, you know, we would interpret it as usually referencing Christ. Um, and, you know, he was trying to say how they look at it. And he, the thing that I remember him saying is the importance that, um, you know, it's, it, it's fine to, to interpret it that way. Don't, you know, don't not do that, but just remember where this came from mm-hmm. and the importance of where it came from. And that's something that's has stuck with me um, all these years later is that how I'm looking at that. And let's say if I'm looking at a certain part of Isaiah that we think is referencing, talking about Jesus, it's important. I'm, and I'm not going to not look at it that way. But not everyone, the original people who wrote this didn't see it that way. And that's important to know. Yeah, maybe this is some of the wisdom of uh, more liturgical traditions that always include Old Testament and or Psalm readings, you know, in, in worship, um, that we, we can't just live in the Gospels and the letters, you know, all the time. Yeah. So what led you to actually kind of take this on? Um, was there some, certain, some event, something that you had been seeing that, that made you feel like you needed to try to kind of look at what this phrase meant in a theological focus? I think, you know, maybe it was just, I think maybe getting tired of sort of the, the, the typical internet back and forth of black lives matter. And then someone responds, all lives matter, blue lives matter. I mean, that sort of kind of hackneyed back and forth um, in some ways was annoying to me, but, but also, um, I did kind of want to challenge in some ways both sides in this for the church because I, I really had not seen any what I would consider very substantive theological engagement um, with this idea. Um, you know, the, the most you'd see that I'd seen anyway is um, sort of a easily imagined kind of liberationist, you know, view on this, um, which is fine. That's not going to convince everyone. That's going to work well with mainline clergy. It's not going to work great with people in most rural pews. Um, or, you know, um, there, there's a, I don't know. It just, it's not enough. And, and I, I think there's just a richer case to be made. And that's what I wanted to, um, to, to try to do, um, to really think through this theologically. Um, bracketing sort of the, 
the, the ideological stuff because that's just noise. And I think most of the response to this is, has been a lot of noise um, in terms of it not being very thoughtful. And so I wanted to offer kind of a thoughtful um, analysis of this. I thought I would get, frankly, more pushback from both sides. I didn't get as much pushback as I thought I would um, on this piece. I got mostly mostly positive comments. Um, I got, you know, a few of the sort of um, expected, like, no, all lives matter, kind of, you know, kind of pushback on this. Um, but yeah, m- most folks, um, and I did, you know, I had friends read this and um, I will say where I landed on this was a little bit of a stronger statement than where I kind of drafted it to start. I had friends that read it who said, this is good. I think you could push it a little bit more. And I did where it ended up. I pushed a little bit more um, than where initially um, I had it. Um, but I don't know. I, I like writing because it forces me to think. And it was enjoyable to think through this in what, what hopefully is a robust theological way. So one of the questions that I this article has brought up in me is why do you think there has been a push um, in some ways to de-Judaize the story and to put Christians in the center of the story instead of realizing that we're guests um, basically in someone else's house? Yeah, I think... Uh, Part of it is just historical ignorance and forgetfulness. Mm-hmm. I think part of it is a lot of people raised in churches that only ever preach out of the New Testament. And so people just don't know, you know. Um, if you ever teach, you know, a Bible study on the book of Revelation, the book of Revelation, something like, I can't remember the exact statistic, but something like two-thirds of the uh, of the passages in Revelation are either a direct or indirect allusion to something in the old, mm-hmm. right? So, um I always tell people like you really can't understand the new Testament unless you have some grasp of, of the old Testament. Um, but at least in my experience, most Christians have very little grasp of the old Testament. Um, so I think that's, that's a part of it. Um, and there is certainly the whole sort of Protestant background of um, readings of Paul in particular of the new Testament that were overly shaped by debates about medieval Catholicism, you know, coming out of Luther and all that. And so I think Protestantism, a, a lot of this is the underside of anti, anti-Catholicism among Protestants. Mm-hmm. Um, because, right, because um, Luther read all the stuff about the law um, in the New Testament as being about the Catholic Church that he was rebelling against or trying to reform, whatever. Um which is all good and well 500 years ago, um, but it gets sort of applied. I think, um, I think, I think Luther, Luther was too shaped by his experience of the Catholic Church, and in turn, Protestants have been too shaped by that misreading of Luther's, which is a lot of what the sort of new perspective on Paul is kind of uh, trying to correct. But I think we've inherited too much of that anti quote unquote religion. Which is really, which is anti quote unquote, which is anti Catholic, which ultimately is anti Jewish. Um, I think that's sort of where it where it comes from. Um, yeah, and combined with a sort of American, I don't know, populism or something, that everything is about the individual and the idea of anything having to do with community or in something like Israel um, versus like no salvation is about my individual choices. Um, I think the idea that that we're caught up in this larger story is very difficult for a lot of, again, American Protestants, especially of a more sort of um, fundamentalist, um, radical individualist kind of variety. Mm-hmm. See, that makes sense. Does that track with yeah, you? Yeah, I you think, think that... I know I just make... word vomited a lot right there. <laughs> I, I think that that makes some sense. Um, there is something, especially in American society and in certain sectors of American society that is very much focused on the individual. And I always like to say that there's nothing necessarily wrong about the individual, but it's kind of like salt. If it's too much of it, it can be a bad thing. 
And so that there's this concern that anything that kind of is communal, it's like, well, obviously this is socialism. And it's kind of like, <laughs> uh, no, uh, it's not. Right. And, and I think that that's, you know, the, the Bible, I think, is, is especially in the Old Testament, but I think in the New Testament, is really rife and looking at things from a societal uh, level in a way that I think is hard for us to, at least in the West, to understand. I, I think sometimes in other parts of the world, they might understand it more because they have a very different understanding of of individuals and society and all of that. But yeah. here, that's always been hard. No, I think that's exactly right. And, and I fully agree. I mean, I got a lot of, I guess, my sort of, um, I don't know, and I feel differently about, yeah, I, I echo you, and I think an individual is very important. I mean, I'm a, you know, free speech and, mm-hmm. and all those sort of classic, you know, kind of classic constitutional values, I think are very important, and um, individual conscience and all those things. Um, I think, though, when we when we bring that into the church and we become allergic to anything that is um, outside of myself or larger than myself, that's where it becomes a problem because, as you point out, the the Bible, both the Old Testament and New Testament, are both largely written to by two and four communities, right? Whether that community is Israel, whether that community is the church, it is communities that produce the documents that became our Bible, and they're largely written to be to be read and lived in community. Um, and I think we, we miss that um, to our peril. Yes, it's important to have personal discipleship. You have to have your own relationship with God. That's you know, never take that away. Um, but it's also meant to be a journey that we we do together. And there's a reason that Jesus, the first thing he does is gather 12 disciples, mm-hmm. right? We're we're meant to do this thing together. I agree. One well, there are several things here that are um always fascinating, but towards the end of the um of, of the essay, you recount a story um from graduate school um with a pastor and Mm -hmm. he basically says and this is quote don't tell me what you believe about jesus tell me about uh, tell me how you feel about black people and then i will tell you everything i need to know about what you believe about jesus yeah i found that a fascinating um statement and what do you think he meant by that and how did that how did you take that when you first heard it? It definitely, you know, it struck me, obviously, because I remembered it. You know, this is more than 10 years ago. This is, gosh, over 13 years ago. Um, it definitely stuck with me. And at the time, I think I said this in the piece, it, I was taken aback by it initially, very much because of the scandal of particularity. Like, mm-hmm. like wait a minute, what do you mean? But the, the context of that, and I, I didn't have space to this in the, in the article to explain this, but the context for him saying that was, um, I'm pretty sure, it was a conversation just about, talk about scandal, this whole notion that, you know, people who consider themselves Orthodox Christians, who communed every Sunday, who baptized their kids, who, you know, chanted the Psalms, whatever it was, people that went to church every Sunday, gave to their local churches, um, who also, at the same time, uh, either owned slaves or underwrote Jim Crow or had a Klan robe in the closet, right? That that whole notion that for wide swaths of American Christianity and, and beyond America, um, there are millions, if not billions of Christians who did not connect their faith to how Black people were treated, right? He was, he was naming that sort of dissonance and saying, and I think I think what he was trying to say was lots of people say they they love Jesus and want to know about their orthodoxy, but these people who are saying that the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed every week, are also beating their slaves on the way home from church, right? And I think he was kind of naming naming that, but just the way he said it, I thought was very powerful, and it, and it stuck with me. And it's again this idea of it's Matthew twenty five, right? As much as you did it to the least of these, you did it unto me. So there's a real way in which. Um, 
is my faith in Christ, my following, you know, the, the poor Jewish Jesus is not leading me to at least care in some way um, about the marginalized, the oppressed, in, in particular in this conversation, what's happening with African-Americans in, in the U.S., the legal system in particular, then I've missed something significant about Jesus. Um, yeah, I, um, I, it was funny to recall that story. Uh, that was a very formative class for me. Um, that was a fun class. He was an African-American Presbyterian pastor who also kind of taught in seminary on the side. And he was very, I mean, especially for me at that point, um, I, you know, he was very radical compared to where my politics were at that point in my life. And, you know, he would walk into class and say, I'm, look, I'm a socialist. I'm a, you know, all these things. I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, but I learned a great deal uh, from him. Um, and, and that was just one of those, one of those pieces. Yeah. So what do you think are, is the, can be the implications of basically theologically saying black lives matter? What does that mean for, for, for a person? What does that mean for a church? If they take that and not just say it because everyone else is saying it, but say it in a way that they've thought about it and what, what it means for followers of Jesus Christ to, to say this. Yeah. That's a good question. I, I think it needs to be more than, you know, there's nothing wrong with having a sign in someone's yard. Um, that's not really my thing. Um, sort of the, did you ever watch Seinfeld? Were you a Seinfeld fan at all? You know, the, the episode where Seinfeld doesn't want to wear the ribbon. You know, I'm a, I'm a, I don't want to, I don't want to wear the ribbon. I'm one of those people. Like, I don't want the sign. I don't want the slogan. Um, that's, that's kind of my personality. Uh, I'm an Enneagram four. So I am an individualist in that sense. Um, I do think for me, what, what this should affect is kind of the posture of the church. Um, how do we, how do we engage with our neighbors? So I'm, for instance, my ministry context, I'm in a downtown congregation. Um, until a pandemic, we've often had uh, all sorts of ministries uh, to kind of the downtown community, which in my context is heavily African-American. Um, so like, what does it mean for us to be neighbors uh, to folks who are experiencing um, these incidents with police? Um, who are who are seeing these stories on the news? Um, you know, it was it was really. Um, it's been I, like I have African American have and, and have had African American staff members. And what does it mean for me as a as a pastor and as a supervisor to to walk with empathy through these things when these stories are in the news um, and, and all that. And I don't know that I've done any of that. I definitely have done any of it perfectly. I hope I, I hope I've stumbled and done it okay and tried to without making it about my feelings and my need to be the, you know, the good white guy. Um, I hope I've, because of thinking through things like this, been able just to be sensitive and to listen in, in, a, in, a, in a lot of ways. I think that's a big part of it. Because again, I said I said this at the beginning, but especially with gosh, a lot of mainline clergy, it just seems like coming from a good place and, and unintentionally, it often becomes about, you know, the young white person that, that needs to be seen as the radical or the prophet. Um, I don't think that's the answer. Um, I, I, there, man, there's a name I'm not going to say, but there, there are people that literally built their platforms on, on doing this. Um, for I, I, Maybe a better example is because of taking things like this seriously, what it looks like is me texting a friend when one of these horrible things hits the news and just saying to you know, an African-American friend, hey, I don't have anything meaningful to say, but I'm, I'm, I'm praying for you today. I know that, I'm sure this is hard to watch. I can't imagine what you're going through. And I, I just want you to know that I value you and, um, and I'm sorry that you have to see this and experience this. Maybe that's part of it. Yeah, I think that the one of the, I mean, it's interesting being African American 
I have a reticence sometimes to talk about race in the church, not because I don't want to, but I think because it hasn't been done well. Um, I think that it, there has been a lot of uh, a center of, of kind of look at me type of attitude sometimes um, for in a way of kind of guilting people um, that isn't really healthy and it doesn't really cause people to really think. I think what it does is that it causes people to react. Um, and so I think one of the things that I long for and want is, is better ways to talk about this issue because it needs to be talked about. And I think that there still are a lot of people that, you know, if we go back to looking at the phrase Black Lives Matter, don't really understand it from a theological standpoint. And I think need to hear another viewpoint. But I think the way that especially a lot of mainline clergy handle it is not doesn't work. And and I think it doesn't further the discussion or or even further bring a you know down the road uh, towards racial reconciliation. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I, I agree with that. And I, you know, I think this is a both, we can pick on the mainline and also pick on the evangelicals. I think, in part, this is because both, for me, a lot of at least clergy and, and lay people, and both mainline and evangelicals and, and Protestantism, are so formed by sort of um, what well, used to be cable news. Now, I guess it's podcasts and YouTube. Podcasts, yeah, YouTube, <laughs> everything. But you know, talking heads, right? Mm-hmm. Ideological talking heads on whichever side. You know, you can name all the whoever's. Um, so much of it, we are much more shaped by that sort of those those talking heads, those ideological voices, than anything biblical or theological. I think that's where a lot of, um, and I would say I'm, I'm mainline. I can I think I'd say this: a lot of our clergy are educated in institutions that, in some ways, emphasize the ideological, the sociological more than the theological. I mean, frankly, I. A lot of at least Methodist seminaries, the, the theology is pretty weak. Um, you know, <laughs> one way of understanding the main line is um, you can believe anything you want theologically, but you better believe these things politically. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, they're very, very open-minded when it comes to who Jesus is. <laughs> very close-minded when it comes to what your politics should be. Um, and that, that starts in the seminaries in some ways. Uh, but also, again, the, um, there's certainly plenty on, on the right, just sort of this sort of knee-jerk reaction to, to anything like a, a decent conversation about uh, race and, and racism in, in America, very sort of dismissive and defensive, right? A lot of it is, um, uh, I got some, a few responses like this to my piece, just sort of what sounded like kind of just defensive old white dudes, honestly. Um, I hate to put it that way. Um, um, yeah. Why do you think that there is that there can be defensiveness? Because I think you see that happening in in a lot of different places. I um, read a lot of of writings by um, David French, um, and I think he wrote something. This was maybe back in the summer that talked about racism and, and the importance of really coming to terms of things. And he got just a lot of vitriol from it Mm. and what is it about even just having not even just saying black lives matter but even just talking about issues that you know racial issues that are still a problem that people get immediately defensive are they is it that they're looking at this from an individual standpoint and thinking that it's blaming them or, or what's going on yeah I think there's some of that. I mean, I think, you know, I've definitely had, when I was younger, conversations or listening to a lecture or whatever about racism or or something in racial kind of history. Or, you know, I feel implicated, right? Where there is this sort of, um, uh, that sort of personalized thing. Um, I think there's a lot of 
you know, a, a lot of fear of that conversation, a lot of, you know, one of the things I, I say this, um, to this in sermons and in classes, one of sort of the mythologies of, of the South, Stanley Harawas talks about this in some places. One of the kind of mythologies of growing up in the South is, of course, related to, um, you know, uh, the Civil War was fought over states' rights, right? Yeah, another big one is um, you never meet anyone in the South whose family owns slaves, right? <laughs> it's just a, kind of a trope in conversation, but I, and I, I can remember these conversations growing up. All just vanished, <laughs> right? Yeah, like, well, yes, you know, slavery was wrong and slavery was a problem, but our family wasn't involved in that. We were poor white people, right? Um, so I, I, that defensiveness, I definitely recall a lot hearing. Um, hearing growing up. Um, I don't know if you find that as much in, you know, 20 somethings now, but I certainly remember hearing that stuff growing up. Um, uh, I think, yeah, it's, it's hard to say it's, it's multi, I think it's multifaceted and it's different for, for different people. I mean, there is a, how do I say, well, I think I've already said this, right. I had some trepidation about, about writing this piece and, and public publishing it in part just because it's about race mm-hmm. and the conversation in a lot of places is pretty toxic uh, on both the left and the right, where if you veer from whatever the Orthodox position is, uh, you're going to be vilified very, very openly. Um, so I think in, in some ways, at least online, that that conversation is, is pretty toxic. Um, I think it's unfortunate and maybe I, what I should say is I think a better answer is relation. I think, I think the best context for this conversation is relationships, mm-hmm. um, right? Like I've learned, you know, I try to read a lot of books and stuff like that, taking classes, but you know, it was one of the most, again, formative things for me was one of my early in my ministry, one of my district superintendents, I want to say this was maybe shortly after Tra- the Trayvon Martin case or when that was still kind of pending. Um, so this, this would have been close to 10 years ago. I think the timing's right. I don't know. But my African-American district superintendent, which in Methodist church is sort of um, kind of like a mini bishop, right? Kind of my immediate boss and the bishop is all of our bosses in, in our polity. Um, our DS, who's African-American, describing the conversations that he had to have with his children when they were growing up about how to deal with police. Right. Um, and I, I remember that moment, like I never heard a black person describe that conversation before. That was, that was new to me. Right. And I was in my mid twenties, probably at that point. I mean, that was a new concept. To me. And so just in the context of that relationship, someone I, I trusted and looked up to saying, look, I'm, I'm not that old, but I had to have this conversation with my teenage son. You know, that was huge for me. And that's not a, a talking head. That's not a bullet point. That's not an article. It's not a blog post. It's not a tweet. That's a person I knew and loved and trusted. Saying this is what it's like for me and my family in North Carolina in 2011, whatever it was, you know. When um, uh, some of the pushback I got in this piece was like, this is not practical. What do you, what do, you do with this? Um, and one response to that is something I think churches can and should do is have partnerships between predominantly Anglo and predominantly African-American churches. And um, I, I was, um, there's a, a friend of mine in town who's a Methodist pastor who's African-American. And um, uh, we, we began kind of a process of like, this was a few years ago before the pandemic, we would get lunch once a month or so, you know, have a burger and just kind of, talk and catch up and most of what we did was not really talk about social stuff or even church stuff we're both nerds and we talk about marvel movies and comic books and that kind of stuff but just sort of bonding on a human level and and we began to talk about hey we should get our churches together what would that look like how can we you know should we do a bible study together should we ha- have potlucks together um and we were in the process of starting that and kind of the pandemic happened but i think that's sort of for the church a great place to start stuff like this is just building local relationships. Um, I mean, I'm in Greensboro, North Carolina, which is in some ways, um, uh, you know, a hotbed of the civil rights movement in the fifties and the city movement and stuff like that. I mean, I'm, my church is walking distance to the international civil rights museum. So we should be able in my context to have this conversation. 
Um, and again, posture, right. To be able to, uh, to go to a, our neighboring African American church and saying, um, you know, we, we just, we want to have a relationship. We want to learn from one another. Um, we know that there's stuff that we don't understand. We want to, and just kind of build a relationship um, in Christ as brothers and sisters, but also try to learn, you know, from one another, what it's like to, to be you in this time and place and hear your stories. Um, I would say for, for me, that's been most significant is those personal relationships. A good friend of mine who was um, an African-American Baptist pastor that I was a Duke with, um, you know, he's at the, at the risk of the trope of my black friend, let me name that, where right? I get that that's a trope. But it's been hugely important for me to sort of have those conversations and ask him questions. I'm not going to ask other African-American people that I know um, through the course of the last five to 10 years when these things are in the news and stuff like that. And just to hear his stories about being pulled over by the police and what it feels like to be in a shop and have eyes on you, right? And, um, and I've, I, I teach a class at a local college, an ethics class, and most of my students are African-American. And they write essays and they talk about, you know, being 17 years old in a, this progressive city that I'm in, supposed to be progressive, and they still get those looks from the store clerks and all that, right? So it's conversations like that, I think, that have opened me up to be able to think and, and, and talk and write in these terms. And I think absent those kind of relationships, it's hard to, it's like telling people about Jesus, right? It's really hard to have that conversation over a tweet or Facebook page. No one gets converted. No one gets, has a meaningful change in their perspective with that stuff. So it really has to yeah. be personal. Um, and, and I know that that's not grand enough. That's not like systemic. That's not the civil rights act, 1964. Like it's, it's you know, whatever the voting rights act. But I do think that's the level at which people actually change is on that, that human community relational level. Well, and I think, you know, living as I do here in the Twin Cities, especially in the aftermath of uh, of George Floyd, I think, you know, the Twin Cities has had to do a lot of, in the last year and a half, a lot of soul searching. Um, I think for a lot of, of, of white people, it was in some ways eye-opening that things that it, this was not Lake, Lake Wobegon, you know, things were not wonderful. Um, yeah. But I think we're, you know, then we're all trying to figure out, you know, do we have to do something big to change everything? And, and it's kind of like, no, I think what you do is you get to know someone and you talk about things and talk about life and those stories will come and bubble up. And I think, you're right. That's what's going to change things. It's, you know, yes, there are times where you have to have marches and, and sit-ins or things like that. But most of the time it's people coming together um, to share their lives with each other. Um, I mean, most of what Jesus ministry was, was basically being in relationship with other people. That's what happened. It wasn't though he was, you know, doing something in some big stadium somewhere with just meeting people. No, absolutely. And if I'll, um, I'll put my, my Methodist hat on uh, for a minute, there are historians that argue that the reason France had a, you know, a, a bloody violent revolution and Great Britain did not is because the Methodist movement had so uplifted the poor in Great Britain there just wasn't the interest or desire uh, or that sort of you know, mass of angry, impoverished people mm-hmm. to, to do that. And, and Methodism transformed Britain, not so much through at the level of legislation, the level of sort of grand things, the Methodist movement, the engine of it was relational, small groups, three, three to five people, 10 to 12 people, society meetings where people, confess their sin, held each other accountable in love, follow Jesus together. Um, and a lot of that uplifted uh, the poor, they you know, built schools for poor kids and, and all that. But it happened at a very micro level 
but it had very large consequences for society writ large. Um, I think we often, I don't know, that, that doesn't sound big enough to people. And not to say there's not things that, that could be done, uh, for sure. Um, you know, I, I read last year, I think, New Jim Crow. And that was a very eye-opening book. That was a very, um, you know, difficult book, but also very well-researched and um, a significant book uh, for me. Um, but I do think for for people's perspective, you know, we've, we've learned this with the abortion debate, I think, that uh, changing legislation does not change people's hearts and minds. Um, and I don't think that we're going to come to a better understanding uh, of, of the history of, you know, racism and its implications today with legislation, even though there's some that may be helpful um, and needs to happen at a level of people. Yeah, I think, you know, the way that the kind of racial progress has happened is I think in the fifties you know, and sixties, what was, what was happening was, was dismantling the legal framework, um, the laws that were in place and all of that. What's mm-hmm. happened in the years since the 50 years since is more dismantling kind of the social framework. And that takes a lot longer because it's not as visible. It, you know, it's easy to take down a whites-only sign or mm-hmm. um, to something like that or integrate a school. Well, it's not that easy, but it it's done. But it's harder to start to really deal with some of the the maybe the biases or or, or misunderstandings or things that have been there for decades. And I think that that's, that takes time. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, I'll name a, a resource that I, I found helpful. It could be a model for still what we're describing. It was one that I, I listened to, I think last year, it's, the author's name is escaping me. It was called Be the Bridge. Um, uh, it was, it was, I thought it was the, maybe the best book I've read that tries to approach um racial reconciliation, racial justice from a Christian lens. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of what's out there is from a secular perspective. There's, there's value to those two. This was from a, a, what I would consider a pretty robust theological frame. Um, and that's, that's one. And it's got like um, discussion questions and stuff for church discussions and discussions between you know, an Anglo and a black church and things like that, um, that I thought was actually a, a pretty helpful resource on this uh, for what we're talking about. One question that I have is, and you kind of touched it briefly in the essay is what was, what do you think was the role of John Wesley when it came to the issue of race um, during his own lifetime? And then after that, uh, because obviously he spoke a lot or, or had as the statement that you had about um, American slavery, um, he had some role in in dealing with the end of the slave trade, um, at least from with Britain. What do you think has been his role? Yeah, he certainly was supporting Wilberforce and wanting to see it outlawed um, in the UK. My my history is not good enough to to tell you how involved he was in that. I, I want to say that that maybe that was a fairly new discussion near the end of Wesley's life. So I don't know how involved. He'd been beyond encouraging Wilberforce. The timeline is um, is not there for me in my head right now. I will. Have you, have you, did you ever see the movie Amazing Grace about Wilberforce? You know, I have not. I need to see that. It's a good. It's it's a good like kind of church group movie. Okay. Um, the guy that played um, uh, Mister Fantastic in the terrible Fox Fantastic Four movies plays Wilberforce. Okay. Um, but it was, it, was, it was pretty good. And it's, it features John Newton um, in there, of course, who, mm-hmm. um, you know, had been a slave owner, yep. um, had an evangelical conversion, wrote Amazing Grace. He's, he's got a, a neat part in that movie. Um, but that, that's a powerful, powerful movie. I mean, the, the early Methodist movement was, uh, was anti-slavery. Um, actually, I'm, I'm listening right now to, this book is so long. It's Ron Chernow's new, I think it's new, Biography of Washington. Um, it's very good. It's long, it's extensive. Um, but one of the anecdotes in the, in the book is 
when the, the two for the, the two original American Methodist bishops, uh, Asbury and Cope, they actually visited Washington's house uh, because they were they had, they were putting forth a piece of legislation in Virginia to end slavery, and they wanted Washington's support. Of course, Washington um, hemmed and hawed on that. He, he didn't put his name to it explicitly. Um, he was sort of um, uh, he was sort of on both sides of the fence uh, about slavery in, in his in his life, from what I understand from, from that book. But that to say early Methodism was explicitly um, anti-slavery, but much like the story of kind of America itself, very quickly for the sake of unity, kind of gave up on that stance uh, so that the Methodist movement could grow in America and all that. So we started off kind of in a place where like the Quakers were but compromised on that pretty early on, um, unfortunately, um, uh, again, in the, in the American context. So I think the, one, the final question that I have is, what do you think is your objective with this essay? What, what do you think is you want someone to get from reading this essay? I would want someone that has been, let's say, a supporter of Black Lives Matter, who's a Christian, to, to walk away thinking that they have a, a more robust theological frame for making that affirmation. Mm-hmm. Um, that it's not, they're not just saying that because they're a good liberal. They're not just saying that because they're a good person. But that there is, is significant theological and biblical warrant for saying it, for, for how God works in history, how God works in Scripture the arc of salvation history, um, all those things. I would want someone that's maybe not been as quick to affirm Black Lives Matter, um, who's a Christian, to think more carefully about that, the reasons for rejecting that. Um, and hopefully, uh, I've given them, hopefully, some some good reasons to think maybe differently about it, um, both about why it's something that we can and should affirm, from a Christian perspective, um, and and why it's worth rethinking, um, and I think why our African American neighbors need to hear the church say this. Maybe um, I don't want to you know speak for anyone, especially for African Americans, but but again, I, I think um, I don't know. Silence is violence is sort of a trope, and it's I don't know. It's it's a little silly to me, but there there is something to the church needs to have a moral voice. And I don't think that should be an ideological voice. I mean, we, you and I have had conversations along these lines previously. Um, so maybe that's maybe that's part of it, is that for the Christians that have resisted this language, to see it not as a political or ideological statement, but to see it as a statement of, of God's grace uh, for all of humanity, in particular for african-american sisters and brothers um who are who at least we should be willing to hear them say we feel like based on not just hundreds of years of history but the last 10 years of history and all these horrible things that society does not care what happens to us um and as the church we should be able to to the first people to say uh for us because we love jesus your life matters to us I think that that is a great place to end it. Um, the essay is The Scandal of Particularity, Black Lives and Jesus, which is in Firebrand Magazine. And there will be a link in the show notes. And uh, Drew, it's been good to talk to you, um, to have this discussion. I hope that we can have this discussion again sometime soon on another topic. Yeah, this is this is a lot of fun, uh, fun Dennis. It's nice to connect via zoom face to face uh thanks for the chance to talk about this piece and i'd you know welcome your your listeners to uh to reach out with questions or, or comments you know i i really I, part of writing this is i want to learn and i, I want to learn from from folks that like it and folks that don't like it so i'd love to hear from folks um shoot me a, an email you, know, you can leave a, a link to my twitter or whatever I'm, I'm not hard to find on the interwebs um but thanks for the chance just to, to talk and uh, for your insights as well All right. Take care. 